Anyway, if you need a Bible to read, there's, they're back there at the welcome desk. So, Esther today, the story of Esther. Um, Esther 4, that's what we're reading from, I think. Esther 4, 1 through 14. Great story. All right, this is long, so hang in there. Um, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with the fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes, if, as you know, because the king had issued that every Jewish person be, be killed. So, and then they couldn't fight back yet. Anyway, that's why they're in mourning. When, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has put one law, has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. <clears throat> Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Join me in these words on screen. Lord, make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. For the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. morning, everyone. Uh, for anyone that I haven't had the chance to meet quite yet, I'm Pastor Laura, and I'm just so thrilled that you are here with us this morning for worship. Um, a little bit about me. Many of you who've been around for a while, you know that my family is basketball crazy, right? My dad's back there in the back, wave dad, say hi. He was a basketball coach, so you know, in my bed, whenever I came home from the hospital, a basketball was waiting for me, and I was expected to learn to dribble before I learned to walk. But, you know, that's kind of how it worked in my family. Um, 
And yeah, dribble left-handed. That was very important. Yeah. Um, but um, something I might not have mentioned about the Sparks family before, I can't remember if I have, is that there's one other thing that we are just as passionate about as we are basketball. And that is card playing. Do we have any card players here today? All right, let me hear. What kind of games do you play in your family? Back in the back. Liz, what do you play? What is it? Oh, I don't even know that one. <laughs> I'm going to have to learn this one. We're going to have a card night. I've just decided. All right, somebody else. What's your game of choice? What was it? Pinochle. I think uh, the Sherds taught us that game. I'm not very good at it, but yes, that's a good one. Somebody else? Speed. Speed. That's a good one. That's a good one. What was it? Rook. Rook. Yes. I'll come back to Rook. Go fish. Dad has a lot of young grandchildren right now. That's what he gets to play. Well, that was how it worked in my family. Uh, You know, a lot of kids go to their grandparents' house, and their grandparents help them do things like learn to tie their shoes or learn their ABCs or, you know, any other sorts of things. But in my grandparents' house, when we went, they'd sit us down at the kitchen table, and they would begin to teach us their favorite card games. You know, we kind of cut our teeth on war and um, solitaire and go fish. And then quickly moved on because we were expected to move on very quickly to blackjack and poker and hand and foot and uh, spades and hearts. Um, you name it, we played it, right? And there were all kinds of cheers and tears around that table because, as you all know, things get very competitive in the Sparks family. Um, there was a lot of cheating that also went on around that table. I had one cousin in particular who was uh, known for cheating our 85-year-old great-grandmother when she would play with us. So we were just all in. We would play cards every time we were together. However, there was one game they left out of my education as I was growing up, and that was Rook. Whoever said Rook? Was that you, Tina? Um, And whenever I married into the Vincent clan, guess what their favorite game was? Rook. So here I am, sitting around a table with this new family that I've become a part of, trying to learn this game that they love. And I, I'll be honest, I like struggled at first to know how to like bid my hand if you played Rick, you know? It's like I wasn't sure what was good and what was bad, and I wasn't sure how to like play the cards strategically yet. And so um, whenever we'd sit down to play, I would always start with this scarcity mentality. You know, I'd pick up my hand and I'd feel like I don't have enough good stuff here, right? And then, you know, a lot of times I would look at my hand and, and I would kind of um, like to play it really safe, you know, because you don't want to be the one that sets your team, that makes you lose points in the process, right? So I'm playing it safe, got the scarcity mentality. And with all of those fears kind of rattling around in my head, all I could do is really focus on myself, right? On my own hand without even thinking about my partner sitting across from me, which wasn't Jeremy because we can't play cards together. It was his mom, I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I wasn't even considering how I might be able to play this card and it could help her and all those sorts of things. So um, I quickly earned a nickname for myself in the Vincent family, and that was Sandbagger, which is not a term of endearment, of course, but it was true. I earned it, right? Like I was chronically underbidding my hand. And you guys, let me just tell you, the Sparkses are serious about cards, but the Vincents are ruthless. They're not here today because Anthony's not feeling so well. Um, But just know if you ever get the chance to play cards with them, okay? Um, But today we're turning our attention to someone in the Bible who found themselves in the midst of this high-stakes card game. 
And in the midst of that game, she has to make this decision whether she's going to play the cards that she's been dealt or sandbag a little bit. And that person is Queen Esther. We're in the midst of a series uh, that's all about the journey that God desires to take every single one of us on, a journey through which we are shaped more into the likeness of Jesus for the sake of others. We've said already that this journey begins first with an encounter. We, we meet God in some kind of way. He seeks us out. And then there's often resistance, right? God seeks us out. He invites us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we're like, oh, wait a minute. We looked at that through the story of Jonah last week. But today we turn our attention to the next aspect. The next aspect of the journey in which we are asked to stretch, to grow, to reach out our hand and play the cards that we have been dealt Esther, she had, she had been um, dealt a pretty rough hand in life. It's fair to say that. I mean, both of her parents had died. She was an orphan. She was raised by her cousin, uh, a guy named Mordecai. And um, I'm sure she greatly appreciated that. But I took a moment this week, and maybe you can take a moment now to reflect on this, what it, my life would have been like if one of my cousins that sat around and played cards with me and cheated my great-grandmother had raised me up in life. And it made me shudder and like laugh out loud at the same time. I have no idea where I would have ended up. But it seems like, you know, this family that she's a part of, gratefully to have at least her cousin, they don't have fame, they don't have fortune. Furthermore, she's a woman in a world run by men. And then to top it all off, she is living as a foreigner in this empire that has conquered her people. She's an outsider. In every kind of way, it seemed as if the deck had been stacked against her. However, one day, she was dealt a card that I'm sure she never dreamt would come her way. King Xerxes, um, probably the most powerful man in the entire world at that time, ruling over the Persian Empire, he had this, um, this conflict with his wife, Queen Vashti. He'd been throwing this lavish party. At this point, I think it's like 187 days long, okay? So like he's been showing off for all these nobles and officials and military leaders with all these different things they could eat and drink and all these lavish decorations. And then he just like wants to put the cherry on top, right? He wants his queen to come in and show off her beauty. But guess what Queen Vashti says? No. <laughs> she refuses to come to the party, and so um, this, of course, did not please the king. Um, he's sitting around. He's shown off for all these people for all these days, showing him how big and powerful he was. And now this one woman is going to defy him in front of them all. And so the king's advisors, they come to him and they say, she's got to go. Queen Vashti is out. So the queen's throne was now vacant. And that was fine with the king for a little while because he had all this anger, right? He had all this adrenaline pumping through his veins. He was so upset at her. But eventually, as all that starts to calm down and wane, he gets a little lonely, right? He needs a new wife. And so those same advisors who said that Queen Vashti has to be out, they come up with this new plan. They're going to go and gather up all the most beautiful women across the whole empire, bring them to the king, and he's going to get to choose his next queen. Um, we talked about this story, I feel like it was only about a year ago, and, you know, 
what we decided then was that um, The Bachelor kind of ripped off Esther, right? Like, this is the first season of The Bachelor here. But wouldn't you know it, here is Queen Esther, or here's Esther, a woman who does not have parents or prosperity or privilege or position in her hand. But evidently, she does have one card to play. She's pretty. And so she is one of the women that is gathered up and taken before the king. And that one card she has, the fact that she is beautiful, is going to take her all the way from being an orphan in the home of her uncle to the the throne of the queen. And in the process, she kind of gains this new card to play, right? Now she has proximity to the most powerful person in the world. Now, if this were a fairy tale, that would be it, right? We would be done with this story. We'd say they, they went off and they lived happily ever after, and we would tie it all up in a nice, neat bow. We've all seen that movie, right? A million times over. And if you haven't, just go home today and turn on like the Hallmark Channel, and you'll get that same rags to riches story, right? But we also all know that, that in this life, things are so much more complicated and complex than that. As we said earlier, you know, we all have these moments of, of stress and tension, these moments of decision when we have to decide if we are going to stay where we are or stretch a little bit. These moments where we have to decide if we are going to play the cards that we have been dealt or hold on to them, keep them tight to our chest. That moment, it came for Esther courtesy of her cousin Mordecai. Thank you, Mordecai, for this, right? He is a person who believes in God and God alone. And so whenever the king's right-hand man, a man named Haman, who's quite the character, if you want to go home and read the entire book of Esther, you'll see that quite clearly. Um, Whenever Haman comes out in front of everyone, everyone's supposed to bow down to him. But Mordecai refuses to do that because he's only going to bow down to God and God alone. Now, that might not sound like that big of a deal, like one person not bowing down. But what we have to know about Haman is that he had a very big ego that was just as fragile as it was large. This, coupled with a violent streak, spelt trouble not just for Mordecai, but for all of God's people. Here's what Haman did. Just because this one man did not bow down to him, he goes before the king. He paints this dark and menacing picture of all the Jewish people and how they're all working against the empire. And he gets King Xerxes' permission, his edict, to put every last one of them, all of the Jewish people in the empire, to death. Talk about an overreaction, right? Yikes. Of course, Mordecai, when he hears this, he is distraught. But Esther, she's just like blissfully unaware, living out her life in the palace until Mordecai goes to the gate to tell her what has happened. And that is when the opportunity to stretch occurs. Mordecai sends word to Esther asking her to go into the king's presence and to beg for mercy for her people. He asked her to take the cards that she has been dealt and to play them in this moment. And as she makes the decision of whether or not to do this, there's so much that we ourselves can learn about what happens when we choose to stretch. First of all, in the story of Esther, we see that that when we stretch, we move from scarcity to strength. 
our tendency in times of tension or stress is to, to kind of think about what we don't have, what we lack, instead of what we do possess. In moments of, of tension and stress, our tendency is to look at our hand and wish that we had a different card that was in there, right? We get stuck in the scarcity mindset, arguing that we don't really have much to give, that we don't have anything to offer in this situation, when in reality, every single one of us, without fail, we all have these God-given strengths that we bring to the table. In this stressful situation, Esther is no different from us. She hears this, this opportunity to stretch from her cousin, and her first reaction is to gravitate towards scarcity and ignore her strengths. She says back to Mordecai, she says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the royal scepter to them and spares their life. But 30 days has passed since I was called to go to the king. Yes, she has this beauty. She has this proximity to the king. She has these two cards right there in her hand, but she looks at her hand and she decides that she wishes that there was another one that was there. She wishes that she had this direct access to King Xerxes. As it was, she was supposed to have an invitation before she went before him. And, and she hadn't been asked to go for this extended, uh, uh, this extended period of time. And so she goes back and forth with Mordecai. They keep having to have this conversation. But after a while, this shift starts to happen. This shift begins to, to happen from this scarcity mindset to open her eyes to the strengths that she possessed, to opening her eyes to the strengths that she and she alone in the entire kingdom had to save her people in that very moment. You might find yourself in, in the midst of a stressful situation right now, <laughs> in a time of tension, and you might look at your hand and think that you have absolutely nothing to offer to it. But I want you to remember, as we look across the Bible, we just see time and time again how God uses what we do have there. You know, there was Samson, and all he had was big muscles, <laughs> and God used that. There was Gideon, who brought clay pots and torches to a battle against a big old army, and God used that. In the battle against um, Goliath, you know, we have David, and all he has is a sack of creek pebbles and a sling. God uses that. Whenever the disciples are faced with a hungry crowd, all that they could find was some biscuits and some sardines. And God uses that. You have Peter and John who are going to the temple with no change in their pocket to help a blind beggar. But they had faith and God used that. So let me ask you, what do you have in your hand today? When we stretch, we, we move from this scarcity mindset to seeing and recognizing our strengths from God. But that's not all. When we stretch, we move also from safety to satisfaction. There was this very real risk in this situation for Esther. 
the real um, situation she found herself in is that, yes, she had this proximity, but she had not been invited. And so she could go before the king, him not extend his royal scepter, and she could lose her life right then and right there. She could lose like a whole lot by putting her cards on the table in this moment. But by choosing to play it safe and keep her cards close to her vest, she could also lose something in that situation as well. Something bigger, the chance to win big. The satisfaction of participating in what God was up to in that very moment. You know, as we go through life, there's, there's something known as the Goldilocks principle. Maybe you guys have heard of this before. I'm sure you've heard the story, at least. You know, the story of this little girl who wanders into um, the home of three bears. And there she eventually finds some porridge that's not too hot or too cold. A chair that's not too hard or too soft. A bed um, that's, oh, sorry, maybe it's a chair that's not too big or too small. And a bed that's not too hard or too soft. In every situation, she eventually finds the option that is just right. Yes, you know the story. Well, often when we are presented with a a challenge, we, we kind of look at that challenge and we think that the stretch is going to be too hot, that it's going to be too big, that it is going to be too hard for us. We fear that we might be stretched beyond our limit. You know, uh, maybe you remember this toy that we had when we were growing up, Stretch Armstrong, right? You're supposed to be able to pull that thing in every direction. But I came across this picture of someone who had actually pulled him too far. It seems that even Stretch Armstrong can break, right? But in our minds, when we're presented with this challenge, this is what we're afraid of, right? We're going to be stretched too far, and we are going to snap. We are going to break. And so, as a result, what do we do? We tend to gravitate, gravitate toward the other end of the spectrum. You know, we, we stick to the things that are, are too cold, the things that are too small, the things that are too soft for us. We play it safe over and over and over again, always choosing the option that is a sure thing, you know, always um, managing our risk and keeping it as small as possible, always pursuing things and setting goals that we know that we don't even really have to make much of an effort to reach. But the truth is, somewhere in between this stretch that is too big for us, that might stretch us beyond our limit, and these, this response where we're stretching in a way that just keeps us trapped where we are is a stretch that is just right And the reality is we need that stretch to thrive in life. Because here's what the research tells us. The research tells us that if we don't stretch ourselves to that optimal limit, that what we miss out on is this, satisfaction. We miss out on the fulfillment. We miss out on the gratification. We miss out on the contentment and the happiness that comes along with rising to the challenge. It is in this stretch that growth happens for us. It is in this stretch that we are shaped and molded by God more into the likeness of Jesus as we have to make this stretch with and for him. Is it painless? Nope. Have any of you tried to like reach down and touch your toes lately and felt the stretch of that? Yeah. Stretching of any kind is not comfortable. Is it going to cost us something? You bet. 
It's going to take us some time and energy and, and perhaps, you know, some trial and error. But is it worth it? 100%. The Bible talks about this over and over again through the stories like the people of Esther and the other folks that we mentioned earlier. But also in places like Romans 5 where it talks about how the trials and the tribulations that we face, what they do is they produce perseverance. And that perseverance produces character and that character hope. And not just hope, but hope that does not disappoint us. When we stretch, we move from safety to, to experiencing this deep, sustaining satisfaction that comes along with being shaped by God for his purposes. That's what Mordecai reminds Esther of in the midst of this tense and stressful moment. He comes to her and he tells her that if she remains silent at this time, that's fine. God is going to bring deliverance for his people from somewhere else. But what's going to happen is she's going to miss out on being a part of it. This is what he says. He says, who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God through Mordecai, calls Esther to stretch in this moment. And as she responds, we discover one last lesson. When we stretch, we move from self to service. Esther, she says yes. She decides that she will approach the king. And in doing so, she shifts her focus from herself, from self-preservation, from her own comfort, from a sure thing, you know, the safety that she has in that moment. And instead, she moves from herself to the service of her people. She takes into account the plight of the Israelites in that moment. With all God's people fasting with her, Esther, she goes before the king and he does extend that royal scepter. He allows her to come before him. And in fact, he is so delighted to see her. He offers her up to half of his kingdom. You guys, that's a pretty big prize for a girl who has no power or prosperity or position in her hand. But in that moment, instead of taking something for herself, instead she lays down her cards for others. She asks the king, to spare her own life with the lives of all of her people. It's a big gamble, but guess what? For and with God, she wins big. They're all allowed to fight back. Their lives are saved from the edict. Throughout this series, we, we've said over and over again that, that God takes us on this journey of being formed into the likeness of Jesus for the sake of others. You know, it's not that we are shaped by God so that we can like earn all these merit badges that we proudly wear across our chest and show off to everyone. No, <laughs> rather we receive God's love and his grace and his mercy so that we can turn around and we can just give it away to someone else in service. Michael Jr., he's a person who has a very unique card in his hand. He's a funny guy. <laughs> He's a Christian comedian. And you might not think about how God might use that in, in some great ways to take kind of his deep gladness and meet the world's greatest need. But it happens every time he gets on the stage. But it started to happen whenever he made this shift in his life. You know, as a comedian, a lot of times your goal is to go up on stage and to get laughs from the crowd, right? But one night it occurred to him 
that really it's, it's not about what he could get at all, but rather what he could give to the people who were there. Let's take a look at this video together. People ask me all the time, Michael, what was your big break? Our next guest has performed on Comedy Central's Premium Blend. He made his first appearance on The Tonight Show from the Montreal Comedy Festival. You've seen him on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. That wasn't a big break. The big break was at a club. And right before I got on stage, I had a change in mindset about comedy. Normally when a comedian gets on stage, he wants to get laughs from people. And I felt a little shift take place where I felt like I was to go up there and give them an opportunity to laugh. Now I'm not looking to take. I'm looking for an opportunity to give. This changed everything. My name is Michael Jr. I'm gonna do some jokes. And ultrasounds come in color now, which is ridiculous. I know it's a black baby. It better be a black baby. <laughs> I leave the club that night, and there's all these people giving me hugs and high fives, telling me their favorite jokes. Then I look across the street, and I saw a homeless guy. And I thought to myself, what about him? Most comedy, most jokes are set up. My son, four years old, looks at me out of nowhere. And he says, Dad, I want to be a doctor. I was like, yes, yes. And then a punchline. Then he said, or a dinosaur. <laughs> I understand that me doing comedy and doing all of these TV shows and making all these people laugh is really just a setup. My punchline is to make laughter commonplace in uncommon places. We go to Montrose, Colorado, a place called the Dolphin House. They take care of children who have been abused by their parents. And this grandmother explains to me that her um, grandson is being abused by his mom. He's so afraid of his mom that everywhere he goes, he wears a Spider-Man costume. So I get on stage, sitting right up front, Spider-Man. I start doing comedy. People start laughing, slowly but surely. Probably about 25 minutes into it, I hear a voice, and the voice says, my name is Ronan. And this little boy pulls off his mask. And it was one of the most powerful moments in my entire comedy career. If we could just stop asking the question, what could I get for myself? and start asking the question, what can I give from myself? I think people would learn that you don't have to be a comedian to deliver a punchline. It's really what I want to get across to people. And I think I just did. I looked at the camera again. I don't know if I was supposed to do that. <laughs> We've all been given a setup. So how can you be the punchline? Said another way, every single one of us are holding cards in our hands that God has given us to play for his sake and for the sake of others. And so don't be sandbagging, okay? I hear you can get a nickname for that. <laughs> but don't let scarcity or safety or, or self-focus hold you back. But instead, let's stretch together. Let's own our God-given strengths and find our satisfaction in serving God and others. Let's pray together. Lord God, you gave everything for us. You went all in. 
You laid all your cars on the table when you sent your son Jesus into the world. God, we look to him as our example. We look to him as the one who, who didn't look at us and, and think that he, he needed to play it safe, but who just freely gave his love away. God, help us to freely give away the love and the grace that you have given each of us. Help us look for the opportunities that you're placing before us to take our our passions and our experiences, um, our gifts and our abilities, and to play that for you. To play that in a way that meets our world's deep hunger, that meets our world's deep need. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.